This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Welcome into the latest edition of the Show Before the Show podcast, the official podcast of Minor League Baseball. Long live Minor League Baseball. We are headed into the uh, the final days of the MILB postseason here in 2022. We got a lot to talk about. My name is Tyler Mon, Sam Dykstra in New York City. Hello, Sam. Hello, Tyler. Do you want to tell the good people who are listening where you are podcasting from? I am in another city. I am in Panama City. Uh, Panama! I've been singing that all week. I was wondering if you were going to do it. I knew <laughs> that it was going to come up. It was either going to be you or me, and I'm glad you did it first. <laughs> Not only have I been singing it all week, but today they're on the headset on up in the booth. They just have like some filler stuff going uh, with the slate on the on the broadcast screen and all that. And they were playing Panama by Van Halen in the background. And I was like, this is fantastic. Uh, but yeah, we're getting set to go for uh, the second of our two six-team uh, World Baseball Classic qualifiers. We will get that started uh, tomorrow, September 30th. So the day that you are able to download and listen to this episode, uh, we may be already knee deep in day number one uh, of the World Baseball Classic qualifier, the second of our two this year. We've got uh, the early game tomorrow is New Zealand and Brazil. And that is at noon local time here in Panama City. So that is at one o'clock Eastern. Three o'clock, uh, wait, 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 11 o'clock mountain, 10 o'clock Pacific. Um, nobody ever gives the mountain time zone, so I have to get the mountain time zone. Uh, and then the night game is going to be Pakistan-Argentina, which will be an interesting one. The winners of those games will move on to play Nicaragua in the early game on Saturday and uh, the host nation Brazil in the late game on Saturday. And then everything will kind of roll from there in the uh, modified double elimination tournament. So uh, really excited to get that going. I'll be back on the call for that. And as you can tell, I have a fully functioning voice again. Very excited to to get to utilize it. Uh, I'll be alongside former Mariner and Team Australia WBC participant Ryan Roland-Smith yet again. Uh, So really pumped to to be back on the call. And uh, it's not the only baseball that is going on. Uh, here this week in the only big opportunity baseball we've got championships all across the minor leagues teams that have already been crowned and teams that will be crowned as the triple a triple championship opens up this weekend sam so much playoff action as we kick off this week's uh edition of the show before the show give us the the headlines the highlights the rundown of the things that have most caught your attention in what's already wrapped up uh, in the minor league postseason, and we got to preview this Triple A Triple Championship and probably remind people what is that again because it's the first year for it this year. Yeah, so I'll I'll just start with like the series that have wrapped up because all that we have left is that Triple A Triple Championship. So we'll save that for for strike two. Um, but single A series are over; they've been over for a little while. High A has been over for a little bit. Now Double A is finished. The Eastern League, Southern League, and Texas League have crowned their champions. In the Eastern League, the Somerset Patriots are the champions of the Eastern League for the first time, a former independent ball team. 
in their second year in the Eastern League. They are the Eastern League title winners. In the Southern League, that championship goes to Pensacola, uh, which beat Tennessee 2-1 to one in their series. We should mention that Somerset beat Erie 2-1 to one in their championship series as well. And then the Frisco Rough Riders swept the Wichita wind surge in the Texas League to take home a title to Texas. Now, the game I want to start with was – Maybe the most insane postseason game I've seen in the minor leagues, um, which there are a lot of minor league postseason games. They're not usually as epic. They're at the end of a long season. They don't get quite the inten- the attention of their major league counterparts for good reason. You know, uh, the league titles are a little bit different than winning a World Series crown. I get that. Somerset to beat Erie. It was a winner take all, best of three. Whoever won this game was going to be the Eastern League champion. Somerset not only threw a no-hitter in game three, at home, Jason Dominguez hit two home runs as a 19-year-old at AA. Each of those two home runs was from a separate side of the plate. Jason Dominguez, a switch hitter, so he homered from the left. He homered from the right. Somerset won 15 to nothing was the final score. I can't think of a more well-rounded team performance in a game that mattered that big. I can't remember one necessarily even maybe like in the regular season that was quite to that standard. You think about everything yeah, that's on the line and playing at home. But that is a whooping. That is a whooping. Nothing like, in a no-hitter. Yeah, it was it was really insane to to follow it last night. Uh, we should mention that the, the no-hitter was thrown eight innings by Randy Vasquez and then Carson Coleman came in in the ninth inning uh, to slam the door and complete the no-no. So it, this was not an instance in which, you know, there, there were five guys, which sometimes happens in the minor leagues, especially at the end of the season. It wasn't a situation where one guy threw a no-hitter and sometimes you just get a really hot hand. Carson Coleman still had to get through a no-ninth to complete it. Uh, and with a 15 nothing score, like, the game was over. He didn't need to have that pressure, but there was still some added pressure to it. He actually hit the first batter he faced, uh, but then got through the rest of it unscathed. It was just so awesome to follow along with that game. It was really special. You could tell the game mattered to everybody in Somerset. Uh, probably helps that Somerset is a Yankees affiliate. They play in New Jersey, not that far off. There was actually a pretty cool moment late in the game. And honestly, Tyler, this is how I found out this happened. People were going nuts in the stands. Nothing had happened on the field. And the announcer is trying to figure out what's going on. You know, it's a minor league game. Anything could be happening. That's when Aaron Judge hit his 61st home run. So people were following along on their phones. Maybe they're getting the the text updates, whatever. I just hear people go crazy. I was at the office. I was there late last night. I look up and Aaron Judge is high-fiving people in the dugout. I'm like, I missed it because this double-A Eastern League title game was so (laughs) exciting. Um I just I can't get enough of it. I've tweeted about it a bunch. It was just so so fun to watch. Randy Vasquez was not only really good in giving up no hits, he was very efficient. Um, I think he probably could have gone the ninth inning, but I'm not going to question the Yankees on that strategy. You don't want to break a guy for something. Like he gave them eight quality innings, eight no hit innings. It was really special stuff. Um, Dominguez has come on really well at Double A. We're going to see him in the Arizona Fall League. The Fall League starts play next Monday, um, so he's going to keep right on trucking. Uh, after you know getting a late season call to high A, they push him to double A to give him a little extra work to high A ends. It was really, really special uh, to see Somerset do that. And you know, again, just to shout out, shout out those other two teams, Pensacola uh beating Tennessee two to one. Yuri Perez, the Marlins top pitching prospect, 
was the starter in that game. He only went three innings, but still had a really solid performance. He whiffed the first eight batters of the game, um, six of them on sh- on swinging strikeouts. Uh, he finished with nine strikeouts across three innings, so all of his outs were via the K. Again, you want him going deeper. I think he was 60-something pitches into the start, but still – the fact that Yuri Perez did Yuri Perez things, I think, was super exciting. And Frisco winning uh, over Wichita. If you're a Rangers fan right now, you kind of want some hope that, yes, they signed Marcus Semien last year. They signed Corey Seager. I think there's some hope on the farm. They have a pretty deep farm system. If these guys are going to start winning, that's a good sign for a team right around the corner, especially at double A. Jack Leiter had a difficult start in that championship series. But now he has a ring. That's got to feel good going into his start. Um, Hopefully in a couple weeks we're actually going to have Jack later on the podcast. I'm looking forward to talking to him about that. But, uh, yeah, a lot of reasons to be optimistic. Do these championships really matter that much? Not really, but, like, even now I bring up the Frisco article, and in the background is the celebration of them going crazy after that that game. Um, Really cool to see all these three teams walk off with with titles and with something cool, because this isn't something we got last year, obviously, in 2020. So, uh, with the minor league playoffs nearly in the rear view, the AAA Triple Championship has arrived here in 2022. Uh, An interesting format in which we have uh, teams that have traveled from across the baseball landscape to Las Vegas, where the top two teams, the Pacific Coast League and the top two teams in the International League, one of which is a former Pacific Coast League team, uh, those four teams will match up for their respective league titles. And then the champions of those games will play each other for the AAA National Championship. This is really cool. We've done the AAA National Championship in seasons past, obviously, uh, but the Triple Championship is a totally different thing. It removes the the championship series from those leagues, and it reduces those to kind of a, a coin flip game uh, with a one-game uh, determination of a champion. But then you see the, the International League and the Pacific Coast League champs face off, and it's cool, man. This feels like something uh that's throwback-ish it feels like the the AAA World Series of years past when there were three AAA level leagues and uh and it was a totally different format to crown a champion yeah it kind of <clears throat> reminds me of like the Bricktown Showdown too a yeah. little bit which is essentially the AAA National Championship but um um but yeah no this is a really cool format you kind of wish that there were like more AAA playoff teams and and Tyler I actually want to get your thoughts on this as somebody who even the world baseball classic is double elimination but still like there are not series involved here so how do you kind of feel about there being one winner take all uh in a playoff format like this yeah it is definitely tough I mean uh I think for guys who have spent you know six months playing and and doing the grind every single day to get down to one game is tough and that was always the argument against the wild card game too right um, was you you boil 162 games down to one coin flip and it's tough on the other hand you know minor league championships are what they are and I think uh, even though maybe you're reducing them to something somewhat artificial and only playing nine innings to determine a champion that's a really exciting nine innings and it's a really exciting few days of baseball so I think it's cool for a for a minor league format um, these guys everybody wants to win a championship you want to celebrate at the at the end of the day and um, be able to, to get a ring and do all that but I think that there are probably as many guys on these rosters who are cool with a trip to Vegas and potentially two games um, and having some fun out of it 
rather than, you know, uh, a slog of a championship series and all that type of stuff. So um, is it maybe some artificial, some manufactured excitement? Sure. But I think it's going to be really exciting and really fun for these guys. Yeah, I think that hits the nail on the head. This is hopefully going to become a big event kind of moving forward. This is the first year of it. Putting it in Vegas, I think, is a great idea just to generate excitement, get it in a place that, A, teams are really excited to play in, um, but B, like, it adds some spectacle to it. What we hear about where the aviators play, it's a fantastic stadium. It's held pretty big events before outside of baseball. Now let's put in a big baseball event in that stadium too, uh, outside of aviators games. So I think it's going to be fascinating to watch um, these four teams go about it. Like you said, you know, El Paso and Reno in the PCL, Nashville and Durham in the international league. Um, Looking at who I think are the favorites in each of these, if I'm going to make predictions and it's making a prediction for one game of baseball, which is a little nuts, but Hey, what the heck Uh, in the El Paso Reno game, which is taking place Friday. So if you're listening to this Friday, make sure you're tuning in on MILB TV and MLB TV. There's two ways to watch both for free. Um, I'm probably going to favor Reno in that game for one reason, uh, which is that Reno, the slated starter for Reno is Brandon Fox who you could make a claim, I wouldn't do this, but you can make a claim that he might have had one of the most successful minor league seasons on the mound in recent memory. And I say that because Brandon Fott led the minors in strikeouts this year. He struck out 218 batters in 167 innings. We rarely see 200 strikeout performances in the minors anymore. Like that just doesn't happen. And he didn't just squeak past that number. He blew past it. 218. He led the entire minor leagues in innings pitched at 167. So he had the work in to reach that number, but still striking out well above it, a batter in inning only walked 33. So that's a pretty healthy strikeout to walk ratio uh, at double A AA and triple A this year. He actually got better at triple A once he got away from Amarillo and got away from those wins of the Texas league. Uh, he had a two, six, three ERA and 10 starts with the aces struck out 74 batters in 61 and two thirds innings and had a 0.99 whip. That's almost unheard of. And not only Reno, which is a tough place to pitch, but the Pacific close league as a whole. Um, so Brandon Fott getting the start for the aces in that, PCL championship is basically what it is. Um, I think kind of gives them an advantage. Maybe they can ride him for six or seven innings. Maybe he pulls a Randy Vasquez and goes eight, no hit. We'll have to see. Um, over on the IL side, which is on Saturday, uh, the times for these, the Friday game is at 10.05 Eastern, 7 p.m. Pacific, which is where Las Vegas is. Saturday will be at 9 p.m., uh, 6 p.m. Pacific. It's between Nashville and Durham. And we talked about this last week, the success of the Rays teams in the postseason. The fact that Durham is here now as well means all four full season affiliates for the Tampa Bay Rays have made their respective postseasons. That being said, I think I favor the Nashville Sounds in this one. Their lineup is long. It is deep. I'm going to be fascinated to see how they make their outfield work because they have Sal Freilich, who's been incredible there. He's been on a uh, he had a 40-game on base streak. Joey Weimer has actually gotten better since moving up from AA to AAA. Um, he has tools on tools. He can really throw the ball. He has plenty of power. He has speed. He's going to push the envelope. They picked up Estery Ruiz, who actually would have probably been playing for El Paso on the other side, but he w- was acquired in a Padres deal uh, for Josh Hader. He led the minor leagues in steals this season, and he's a really, really good 
runner, obviously. You can be a good defender. They used to have Garrett Mitchell in that mix, but now he's in Milwaukee. So I think this Nashville Sounds lineup, they also have a veteran in John Singleton. Tyler, I'm sure you remember his days as an Astros prospect. Very much, um, yes. John Singleton is back in the minor leagues. He actually led the minor leagues in walks this year. Um, so his approach is as good as ever. Uh, didn't crack the Brewers major league team, but spent the entire year at AAA. Good for him for being back in affiliated ball. Uh, I just really think that's a deep national lineup. Durham has some guys too, Josh Loeb, Adal Bruhan, um, some some guys who are top 100 prospects on their own right. I just think Nashville is so deep that it, they can win this game like seven to five. And we should also mention, since it is in Vegas, Vegas is a hitter's paradise. Like guys can really smoke the ball yeah, there. It is. Um, so, you know, the longer your lineup is, the better chance I think you have to win a slugfest that could happen at any time in Vegas. So I'll give Nashville the advantage there. Nashville versus at Reno. You take Brandon Fott out of the equation. He's probably not, he's not starting uh, the AAA national championship itself. I'm going to make Nashville the favorites on my end. Tyler, do you got any picks or any thoughts on any of these four? Yeah, I think I probably would have gone the same way. Um, and the thing that's so funny about these games is like you said, I mean, you could see one of these teams go out and all of a sudden the first inning, they give up a five spot and everything looks entirely different. I mean, it's just such a an impossible thing to pick a one-game scenario right. in baseball. Um, and we so rarely have to do it, you know, which is what makes what made the, the wild card game its own interesting brand of thing, what makes the World Baseball Classic uh similarly its own interesting brand of thing. Um, but yeah, it's uh these are four really fun teams to watch. There's good prospect talent on all of them. Um, and like you said, there's the potential for a lot of offense, which is really cool too. And I think that's something that helps create um some I don't want to say artificial excitement, but fan uh, centric excitement in an event like this. If you get three really entertaining games that feature some runs uh, and some homers and, and some showcase type of performances, that's good for an event like this. Cause that's what you want out of the triple a triple championship. And um, it'll be cool, man. I'm excited to see a, a different style event play out uh, over the next few days. I think it'll be pretty fun. And uh, for everybody who is in Vegas and going to check it out, let us know what you think. You can get in touch podcast at MILB.com. And uh, that means that we are very nearly at the end of this season, as crazy as that is to think. And Sam, when you look back on 2022, what are the things that you are most going to remember uh, about this campaign? I know you and Ben will talk a little while from now uh, on the show, a lot about the pitch clock. And uh, especially knowing now that's coming to the major league level in 2023 and beyond. Um, that's something that has put its stamp on minor league baseball. We saw the the pie slice uh, come into play this year with that rule change, with the the shift now being limited uh, going forward. But when you think back on this season, what will stand out most to you? Yeah, just to kind of add to the pile, because we didn't talk about this later and I want to bring it up, um, is the challenge rule. I think the challenge rule has actually worked really well in terms of the automatic automated ball strike system. Um, you know, everybody was preparing for robot ums for a while and just thinking that was the future. And now all of a sudden we have this challenge system in which either the pitcher, catcher or hitter can challenge a ball or strike call immediately. We find out quickly the human element is still there. Umpires, I think that's worked out really well. And I think that's closer to what we're going to see at the major league level eventually. So I just wanted to touch on that real quick. That was something new for 2022. But I think the biggest thing for me this year was it just felt closer to normal. 
there wasn't this whole thing of trying to remember like who is playing where, what are the leagues like, what are the league names? We got the league names back. We've been rejoicing that at every time. Yeah, that still is just such a win. That still feels amazing. Yeah. And there are still some things that we're not getting used to, but like our holdovers from 2021, the six day a week schedule, Monday's off for everybody. Um, That's still new, but it felt closer to normal. It felt like just a thing this year, not like, oh, I have to get used to this. It's like, no, this is settled fact. Um, Not having to be concerned too much about like guys getting put on taxi squads. The taxi squad still exists but it wasn't as big a role this year. I felt like when I was hearing about the taxi squad, it was more about big name prospects being put on the taxi squad for like a day. We just had that recently. Logan O'Hoppy, Los Angeles Angels, got put on the taxi squad for a day and then was added for his major league debut. Um, just thinking about all the things, all the hoops guys had to jump through for 2021, those weren't as heavy this year. And it's easy to say that, like, I know people think the pandemic is over there. COVID is still an issue for a lot of people. Not everybody feels perfectly normal and that is okay. I don't want to make it seem like, you know, everything's tutti frutti out there, but it just, this felt like what minor league baseball is going to be going forward and everything just really settled in. Um, We're playing baseball into October. Now we're playing past labor day and that felt okay. It wasn't because a big issue, you know, think about, where we were in the spring with the work stoppage and we were wondering what everything was going to look like yeah, in, a, in the months ahead. Yeah. And we just really got into that lockstep again of, you know, the, everybody's playing, everybody's moving up a level from where they were last year. There is no question of like, who was at the alt site? Who wasn't at the alt site? Whatever. Um, what is this guy going to look like? Cause we haven't seen him in two years. We saw guys last year. We saw them come back. We saw them make steps in their development. We still saw surprises. We still saw Jackson Churio come out of not nowhere, but go from the Dominican Summer League last year to double A at the end of this year at age 18. Like that's, I've said this multiple times on this show and elsewhere. My favorite thing about minor league baseball is the surprises. I can talk to everybody I want. I can talk to scouts. I can talk to farm directors. I can talk to whoever other fans and as much as you think you have it right somebody's going to surprise you and i love that i love learning about new things i love seeing the breakouts of some guys i love seeing gunnar henderson become one of the top prospects in the game and yeah you could debate maybe he is the top prospect in the game now uh because he changed his approach he all of a sudden was walking more than he struck out at double a and guess what he's a part of another surprise and that the baltimore orioles are relevant They've technically been eliminated, but look at who came up to that team and made them really good. Adley Rutschman arrived. D.L. Hall arrived. Gunnar Henderson arrived. Um, Kyle Stowers hit a home run today in the game that they were eliminated, but like they that conveyor belt keeps moving, and the Orioles got there quicker than they may, may have expected, but we thought this was coming eventually. And getting to see that happen at some point and have it come early, I love that stuff. So getting back to normalcy, which normalcy also means surprises. It sounds contradictory, but it really isn't in my book. Um, was pretty neat. And I think that's just how I'm going to remember this year. Um, anything stick out to you, Tyler? 
I like all that stuff. I think for me, you hit the nail on the head with the more of a return to the feel of normalcy um, from the, like I said, the league names to not necessarily the geographic um, limitations and scheduling, uh, that type of stuff. And even just the fact that, you know, we had a season that was pretty much right on time uh, last year, obviously um, getting things started late with the minor league season. And and yeah, this year, the scare of the, the work stoppage and, um, you know, we, uh, joked so much back in the spring of like minor league baseball will start on April 8th or whatever it was, uh, regardless of what happens with the big league clubs. Um, when all of that settled, it really just felt like a normal baseball season, which we have not had for three years. And uh, that was good. That return to the things that we love about this game and about the minor league version of it specifically um, was amazing. And being able to say, the international league and not triple a west or you know the california league and not low a or triple a east i should say not low a west or not you know whatever it is those sorts of things i think to the the outside observer are probably like All right, what are you what are you so hung up on that <laughs> those things meant a lot to us you know to those of us who have spent a lot of time in minor league baseball those were a lot of the soul of minor league baseball and um to get those back uh, was hugely important and it restored a feeling of uh, what is right in the minors, I think. And, um, and that's good, man. It's, it's, we're all, like you said, the pandemic is still a very real thing in a, in a lot of ways for a lot of people. Uh, but to be back in a circumstance where it was uh, a world that felt nearly like before on a lot of days this summer uh, was very cool. And uh, and that's uh, a pretty amazing thing for the 2022 season and hopefully only onward and upward from there. Um, so that wraps up our opening segment, sort of a modified three strikes on this week's episode of the show before the show. Uh, I was at the ballpark today at Estadio Rod Carew all friggin' day, so I missed out on pretty much everything else in this show. Uh, so Sam Dykstra will carry you through what's coming up. Yeah, uh, coming up next is a pretty big deal. I just was talking about the Baltimore Orioles and how they have arrived at the major league level a little quicker than we expected. Who could get over them? Who could help them get over the hump is their number two prospect just behind Gunnar Henderson, the number four prospect in baseball, according to MLB Pipeline. Grayson Rodriguez, who is our guest this week, um, he is a nationwide ML or nationwide road to the show ambassador but stop by to talk to us a little bit after what could be his final start of the season maybe not we're going to get into that very briefly here but um yeah joining me next on the show is grayson rodriguez okay picture this it's friday afternoon when a thought hits you I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Well, we're really pleased this week to be joined on the show before the show by number four overall MLB Pipeline uh, prospect and MLB Pipeline's top pitching prospect and nationwide road to the show ambassador Grayson Rodriguez. Grayson, thanks so much for joining us. Yeah, no problem. Thank you for having me on. 
Yeah. And let's get into the most recent news for you. You just pitched last night. You went five innings, gave up three hits, one run, three walks, struck out six, threw 89 pitches against Jacksonville. Just kind of take us through that outing. And, and, you know, this is the last week of the minor league season. Things are kind of wrapping up a little bit. What was it like to get out there and and throw throw five innings and and work up to 89 pitches? Yeah. um, You know, it's pretty special, Um, obviously, having to deal with the injury, uh, getting back on a build up um the orioles did a pretty good job of that uh pretty quick ramp up process and thankfully uh no no lingering soreness or anything to go along with that so uh transitioned pretty smoothly back into the season and uh being built up to you know 89 pitches uh last night being able to throw that you know that was that was pretty uh pretty good yeah and how many were you aiming for was it around a 90 pitch limit like what what was the goal going into the last night um really the main factors were uh nothing over 95 and really just no long innings so as long as you know we could keep uh the pitch count down each inning uh we could go back out there um ultimately stopping around that 90 95 mark uh so really you know we hit it right on the nose yeah, no, there you go. It's good to to get close to it like that. And I guess I got to ask what all of Baltimore is, is really wants to know, like what is the next couple of days look like for you? Um, I'm sure you haven't been told, you know, whether you're pitching in Baltimore, whether your season's over, but are you continuing to work out as if you have another start? Like what are your next couple of days like? Yeah. So uh, these next few days I'm going to prepare like I'm making another start. Um, and that's really the main focus. Um you know, whatever the organization wants to do, they'll let me know. I'm sure, um, you know, when that time comes, but as of right now, it's, it's keep working and keep preparing for the next start. Yeah. And, and how do you view these last couple of starts? Because for you, it's coming back from a right lat injury and we'll get into that in a second. Um, but also trying to prove MLB readiness at the same time, it feels like that's a lot to juggle. How do you prepare mentally for these last few starts? Um, I think just keeping it simple. Um, really just kind of focusing on your goals. Um, obviously, you know, it's tough coming back from any kind of injury, um, doing the the throwing programs and stuff to come along with it. Ultimately, you know, trusting that that everything's okay. Um, and then getting back into games, uh, really just trying to make sure that you can throw all your pitches for strikes and that you're attacking the zone. Um, really, it's just about going out there and throwing strikes. That's been my uh, – my main goal here as of late, um, you know, really not to be scared of early contact, uh, especially when you're on a pitch count. So uh, that's your best friend. Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. And, you know, going back to that right lat injury uh, that you are coming back from right now, you know, take us through what happened through when that ha- when that went down early June. What happened? How did it feel when, you know, you knew something was off? Um, so I think I was in the sixth inning of a start. Uh, against Jacksonville again and uh, threw a changeup. Obviously, uh, you pronate a bunch on changeups, and I felt like it kind of tightened up just a little bit. Um, you know, nothing major at all. Uh, went back into the dugout, uh, stretched it a little bit, hit it with a massage gun, and uh, went back out there for the next inning and then ended up getting like two outs on three pitches. And obviously, the velo is down. Um, so they came and got me out of the game and really like, it just kind of felt like a cramp or something minor until we got the MRI. Um, and which the doc said that, you know, I could just be asymptomatic, but, uh, 
you know, really it just, it didn't feel like it was much. And, uh, apparently it was a lot more than what it felt. So, uh, you know, having to go back down to Florida and, and build everything up, um, you know, really it kind of took me by surprise about the severity of the injury. Hmm. Yeah. And, and what is a rehab process like coming back from a latch train? Cause I think people understand shoulder injuries, elbow injuries, things that can take a fairly lengthy amount of time, but lat, like you said, it, it's something if you throwing a ball a certain way, it could still affect how you're pitching. It can affect your velo, like you said, in that next inning. So what was it like coming back from that? What is the rehab process like exactly? Um, well, first off, when we got down there, first thing we did was uh, obviously not not throwing the ball. Um, I think I didn't pick up a ball for around a month and a half to two months. Um, just doing lower body and, uh, you know, some very, uh, I guess you would say, specific upper body workouts. Um, you know, still in the weight room, uh, obviously doing, uh, arm care and rehab program that the Orioles had made for me, um, soft tissue work, different types of treatment. Uh, and then, you know, when it rolls around to start picking up the ball again and throwing, obviously, you know, you start at 60 feet, gradually work your way back to 120. Uh, once we hit 120, uh, you know, got to go see the doctor again, make sure everything's all right uh, to get off the mound. And once you get off the mound and throw a few bullpens, then you can start seeing some hitters and uh, then you get into some game activity and then uh, you get to start your rehab process. Uh, well, your rehab starts, I should say, uh, in high A and double A and then ultimately back to the level that uh, you were at before. Yeah. And between all that long toss, throwing off the mound, getting back to Aberdeen and Bowie, what was the first thing that felt fully back for you? Was it a specific pitch? Was it command? Like, what was it when you felt like, okay, I'm back to Grayson from April or May? Um, I would say fastballs. Uh, really, when you know you got two strikes on a guy and you get on a heater, uh, and, you know, you're always kind of curious what the velo is, and then, you know, you kind of you peek your head around, and, and the first time, you know, I saw 98, 99 back on the board, uh, that was – that was uh, pretty big for me to know that, you know, the velocity was where we were uh, before it happened. And then the next thing was just being able to throw curveballs for strikes consistently, uh, good spins on the changeup, getting strikeouts with it. And then obviously being able to throw sliders, strike the ball for strikeouts as well. Um, but just kind of, you know, seeing the success and seeing the strikeouts. Yeah. If, Throwing 98 and 99 doesn't mean you're officially back. I don't know what does. Um, but that kind of touches on something that I'm interested in now. And you mentioned you knew the, or, you know, the the tides, the Orioles knew that something was off when your velo was down in that June 1st start. And then you said you knew you were back when it was back. How much are you looking at data to determine like, oh, my stuff's where it is? Or is it off feel coming off an injury? Um, yeah, I think. Obviously, the data plays a big part. Um, I guess when your arm's not feeling as well, you're going to spin the ball a lot slower. Um, Velo's going to be down. Uh, I think spins won't be as consistent. And uh, since coming back, you know, really before the injury happened, I had no arm problems or anything. Like, you know, we were going smooth. Obviously, it was just kind of a – I mean, it was one pitch. It was instant. But uh, since being able to – kind of shut it down for a little bit, go to Florida, throw bullpens and stuff, uh, spin rates up, the vertical break is up, and then obviously velocity is back to where we want it. So actually the fastball improved a little bit. 
Um, you know, I was able to kind of work on some off-speed pitches down there as well. Uh, just kind of refine some things along along the way. Yeah, and and is there anything you feel like you do differently now? You know, lat strain, like you said, you didn't have a history of arm problems, so this was a little bit out of the blue. Is there anything you do differently in between starts, during starts, to prevent something like this happening again? Um, you know, we have a, a biomechanics team and, you know, they looked at some video and some film, uh, from before the injury and then obviously videos after, um, I mean, really there's nothing much different, uh, mechanics, you know, like if, if something works, uh, you want to keep doing that. And, uh, you know, it's kind of a, uh, I guess you could say like a freak, freak accent, freak thing, obviously, uh, Hopefully it doesn't happen again, but if it does, obviously we'll have to, you know, reevaluate, see if we need to make changes. But as of right now, um, you know, everything's the exact same and, you know, we're pretty confident in that moving forward. Yeah. And just mentally, uh, given the timing of the injury, like we were saying, you know, it happened on June 1st, you made your first rehab appearance three months later to the day on September 1st. That's a big chunk of the season to happen. If this happened in the spring, you might miss some spring, a little bit, April, May, but you can finish out the year strong. What was it like mentally trying to balance, you know, wanting to come back healthy, wanting to be 100% when you got back and just wanting to be back on the field and not missing a significant chunk of your season? Yeah, um, it's pretty challenging, obviously, getting to watch all your friends uh, play in the big leagues uh, that you started out the season with. Obviously, Adley, Gunner, uh, Kyle Stowers, a few of those guys that we have uh, up there right now. But, you know, I would say just just you, you feel left out. You know, everybody's playing every night and you're sitting in a hotel room watching the games on TV. Um, that can be difficult because obviously, you know, you want to be in the dugout. You want to be in the clubhouse. You know, you want to be out there playing in the games. Um, and for me, you know, that was a new thing. I've obviously never missed time with an injury. And, uh, you know, just kind of being there, uh, not in games, you know, just feels a little, little feels a lot different, you know, and uh, makes you really, uh, I guess, be thankful for going out every fifth day and making starts. And uh, even though seasons can get long, you know, it could always be worse. Definitely hear you on, on that one. And speaking of seeing all your friends make it to Baltimore, make it to Camden Yards, um, how close did you feel that you were, you know, entering uh, early June? I know a lot of people were asking, like, when are we going to see Grayson Rodriguez? Then the injury happens. But how close to, to Baltimore did you feel at that time? Yeah, I mean, honestly, a pitch away, I guess you could say. Um, <laughs> oh, no. I, you know, I was – you don't want to expect it, but – I mean, it was something that, you know, I thought about pretty much every day, um, you know, wondering when it would happen. And then obviously the injury happened. So that set us back a little bit. But, uh, you know, really, like I felt right there at the door. Um, and that's what's tough, too, with the timing of the injury and everything, um, you know, but that's that's life, you know, that throws roadblocks your way <clears throat> and you got to figure out how to get around them. Yeah, for sure. And, and and just to take, you know, our listeners through what you were doing at that time before the injury, you had a 209 ERA in 11 games, 80 strikeouts and in 56 innings. So it definitely felt like you were knocking on the door. Um, what do you feel like you improved most on this year at AAA, whether it was last night or those first couple months? Like what has been your biggest area of growth at the minors highest level? Um, I would say 
learning how to throw my slider to lefties. Um, you know, that was something we weren't doing a whole lot of. Obviously, a back foot slider is one of the best pitches in baseball, um, especially at the big league level. Um, I was able to get comfortable throwing that, getting strikeouts on it, um, and actually being able to throw my fifth pitch more often, which is the cutter. Um, being able to throw it back door to lefties, front door to righties, uh, use it up in the zone. Um, that was probably a big thing for me, uh, gaining confidence with that pitch, knowing that it can be a strikeout pitch and that, you know, it can be a really good out pitch, uh, whether there's a runner on first base trying for a double play uh, to jam a guy and uh, really just kind of being able to pitch with it in any kind of count. Yeah, it's interesting to hear you talk about the cutter and the fifth pitch because so many prospects we talk to, it's about developing a third pitch or or a fourth pitch. You're on to the fifth. What goes into the shape of the cutter, you know, compared to a slider, and how do you determine usage on it um, compared to the other breaking balls? Um, I would say usage uh, depends on the game, um, what the lineup looks like, uh, obviously what the hitters are doing. Um, I like to really use the cutter a lot if guys are tending to sit fastball. Um, you know, obviously a cutter is a hard pitch, doesn't have the run or the rise of a fastball, the velo's down. Um, so really, you know, obviously it differs uh, from each game. But uh, I would say obviously a cutter is moving similar to a slider. A slider has a lot more sweep. Um, and a lower velocity cutters a little bit tighter, but the velos a lot higher uh, for the breaking the breaking pitch. Hmm. Yeah, no, that makes sense. And um, you know, going back to the guys that you know at the major league level now, between Adley Gunner, Kyle Stowers, DL Hall, um, a lot of these guys have made the majors, and it's been a successful season. You know, they're on the outside of the playoff picture right now, but I think that's kind of surprising to anybody from the outside. How surprised have you been? Or has the the guys within the organization to see this take off this way this year, relying on so much young talent? Um, you know, I think the outside world um, is a lot more surprised than we are. Obviously, you know, we knew that we've had something special uh, brewing, and we visualize that success. So when it happens uh, like it is this year, you know, obviously it's not a surprise to us. But um, I think, you know, it's really good to see him winning a lot of games. Um, obviously the rebuild starting to, you know, take a turn and, you know, here, here next year and the year after that, you know, we're really going to start winning some games. Um, but it's just a blast to watch. You know, obviously DL is one of my best friends. I was able to make his major league debut in Florida, uh, when I was in Sarasota and they played in Tampa. Uh, but you know, it's just a lot of fun. Uh, you see the youth out there on the field, um, and just the direction, uh, that this organization is headed. Yeah, and, and not to get too ahead of ourselves because we have an offseason ahead of us. There's still you know, a week of a season left at the major league level, but how high do you feel like the expectations can be for the 2023 Baltimore Orioles? Um, you know, I would expect really honestly to make a playoff push again, um, you know, not to sell ourselves short of anything, uh, especially the postseason. So, you know, obviously if if we're putting it together, I think we should do uh, we should do just fine and win a lot of games. Yeah, there you go. And uh, in speaking to those guys, having seen them, you know, on TV, I'm sure you're texting them all the time too. What major league tips have you gotten from some of the guys to see Baltimore already? Um, 
you know, really just don't leave it over the middle. Uh, obviously, <laughs> uh, big league hitters can hit can hit pitches down the middle pretty well. Uh, you know, in the minor leagues, uh, you know, when you tend to miss with a pitch or you throw a fastball right down the middle, uh, you know, you get you get lucky on a pop up or a foul ball and you know, that's, that's pretty much the big difference, uh, between, you know, double AA, A, triple A and, and the big leagues. Uh, those guys are getting paid a lot of money to hit and, uh, they're not, they're not going to miss that fastball. Hmm. Yeah. Are you somebody who envisions what his first major league start could be like, like, do you try to set up the situation in your mind or are you just going to let it happen on the day? Uh, you know, really, I'm just kind of, let it happen. Uh, obviously, you know, there's a lot of things that can go on in a major league debut. Uh, but, you know, honestly not worrying about it. I think it causes a little bit of extra pressure if you're thinking about it or you try to go out and, you know, do too much. Um, you know, that's, that's never a good thing. So really just kind of taking it day by day, maybe going out there and, and just worrying about throwing strikes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Not leaving it over the middle, apparently. <laughs> I think that's a pretty good piece of advice too. And and one thing I want to touch on real quick, just speaking of guys who are in the majors is I've always been fascinated by this. It's a very small thing, but it's very noticeable whenever you watch Adley Rutschman work with his pitchers. He always has these immediate meetings coming off the mound. Like he's waiting for you coming off the, the field right at the foul line. It, it seems like um, it seems like a small thing to do. Some catchers do it, but he seems to do it a lot. What are those conversations like and, and how, Rare is that to do that immediately and not wait for the dugout to kind of walk back with you off the field. Yeah. So that's something Adley started doing in college. Um, obviously when he was drafted, uh, the, I think the Orioles had asked him if he was going to keep doing it. And he said, yeah, you know, uh, of course. And uh, as a pitcher, I mean, it's, it's, it's different, special. <laughs> um, a lot of catchers will just take it to the bench, you know, and worry about their own thing and, and uh, you know, really not, not talk much. Uh, but the communication from him is uh, it's pretty superb. Um, you know, he likes to get your thoughts on what you thought about the inning, uh, the pitch calls, and then, you know, he'll let you know what he thinks. And uh, that's kind of some instant feedback right after it happens, um, which is really good. Uh, obviously, if you sit in the dugout for an hour or two, uh, you start to forget what uh, what went on that inning before, obviously, because you're focused on the next inning. Uh but really just kind of being able to communicate with him uh, is big and that helps the pitchers a lot. Yeah. Is, is that something you feel like you prefer now or, or did that take some adjusting to in terms of like, Hey, I just finished the inning. Like, let me get out of here quick uh, before we start talking. Like, do you prefer this method now? Yeah. I mean, it, you know, it doesn't bother me at all. Um, you know, obviously all catchers are different and throwing to a bunch of different guys this year, you know, they all kind of do their own thing. Uh, but really, you know, it doesn't it doesn't bother me at all. Um, I like being able to talk to him, uh, you know, right after that last pitch is thrown. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, Grayson, I want to go back to one last thing here that you mentioned before in terms of in June, you felt like you were one pitch away uh, from a major league debut. Now, you know, like you said, you're preparing for anything. We'll, we'll see what's going to happen here Uh in the next couple of days, what decisions the Orioles make. But I just wanted to note for anybody listening uh, that your last pitch last night was a swinging strike for a strikeout against Jacksonville. Um, how ready do you feel now? Um, you know, just like I did before, um, obviously through the rehab process, uh, obviously the main goal was just being able to get a feel for all pitches uh, in the strike zone. 
And uh, especially after last night, uh, we accomplished that. Uh, threw a lot of curveballs for strikes, sliders for strikes. Uh, change-ups were good. And obviously, fastballs and cutters were getting swings and misses. And, uh, you know, honestly, we're back to where we were in, uh, in May and uh, June, you know, really just right there close, knocking on the door. All right, Grayson. Well, we will be paying close attention uh, to what the decisions the O's make here the rest of the week and, you know, the rest of the season even. Um, but whether it's we see you in Baltimore this year or next year, I'm really looking forward to seeing you out there again and healthy. That's the, the most important thing. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, Grayson Rodriguez, who is here as a nationwide Road to the Show ambassador. Best of luck with everything in the next few days and, and moving into the offseason. Thank you. Thank you very much for having me. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Thanks again to Grayson Rodriguez for joining us on the show before the show this week as a nationwide Road to the Show ambassador. Now, we went a little bit out of order this week, but uh, as always, we bring in now Benjamin Hill. Ben, how are you? Hey, I'm doing well. I'm a road that never goes to the show ambassador. <laughs> Strictly minor leagues. That's it. You're, you're just always on the road to the show, but never reach the show, essentially. I'm not even on that road. I'm just, I'm just on <laughs> the roads right. to no shows. You blaze your own path is what we're saying. That's exactly that, it. To really complete the metaphor and hammer it home. All right, Ben. Well, uh, Tyler and I talked a little bit about this at the top, but I wanted to get your thoughts on this because we did just wrap up double A, high A, single A playoffs. Um, we still have the triple A championships to go this weekend in Vegas. But just as you were following this stuff along and, and you kind of come at it from a unique angle. Some of us are following like which prospects are doing really well in the playoffs. You look at it as just the teams themselves in their communities, what the wins mean for fans of those teams in places like Somerset and Pensacola. So what were your thoughts on how the uh, playoffs unraveled? Yeah, it's something I always enjoy following every year. And you're right. I, I might not be too up on the specifics of the rosters and the prospect status and everything. Um, but just as it ties into history, and I love you know minor league baseball as a historical entity that goes back to essentially the turn of the 20th century, and you know keeping track of you know first you know teams who've won a, a championship for the first time ever, or teams that uh, had a long drought, or teams that still have a drought. Um, yeah, you know, I mentioned last week that I became a little bit interested in the Erie Sea Wolves after visiting them. Uh, they lost uh, to Somerset in the Eastern League Finals last night, and. Uh, as you probably already have talked about. I mean, what a game that was. They won 15 to nothing, Somerset over Erie, uh, with a no-hitter to go along with it. Um, but, you know, the Erie Seawolves have not won a uh, championship at all uh, in the Eastern League, and that goes back to 1999. So I know there's quite a hunger there. And then Somerset's interesting because, um, you know, this is only their second season in affiliated baseball, but they were the winningest franchise in the Atlantic League you know, the history of the internet uh, Atlantic league before that in independent ball. And they won six titles between 1998 and 2019. So, 
you know, totally different scenario in terms of how they put their roster together, or in this case, don't put their roster together <laughs> as it's uh, put together by the Yankees. But interesting, you know, to see that winning tradition just, you know, continue, you know, right on into affiliated ball. And, uh, you know, that's a front office and fan base that has a lot of experience with winning. So, you know, cool for them as well to make that transition. And, you know, so that in a nutshell is the kind of way I, I like to look at things. Um, you know, we were talking about this uh, off air. I call all our conversations that's just in the office off, off air. air. Yeah. yeah. Um, but the Bowling Green Hot Rods have now won back-to-back championships and four in the last five seasons. Of course, 2020 wasn't a season. Um, no, sorry, excuse me, three in the last four seasons. Bowling Green has won three championships in the last four seasons. And something interesting about that is they won in 2018 in the Midwest League, 2020 in the what was it called in 2020? The High A East during that anomalous season when we didn't really have proper league names. And then the High A East became the Carolina League. Um, And then they won it in there. So that's uh, three different leagues over a four-year span, the same team, uh, three different titles. It can be hard to keep track of, uh, but I think that's an interesting thing. In AA, Pensacola in the Southern League, they won their first ever outright title. I know when we're talking about, you know, championship droughts and uh, how many titles the teams have, it can be a little murky sometimes because it's unfortunately not a super uncommon event for a the playoffs or a final series to be canceled. And the most uh, common reason for that, you know, is, is weather, you know, mm-hmm. threats of hurricanes and whatnot. And as an aside, you know, thinking about Southwest Florida and all the people down there and you know, the minor league operations, uh, not thinking about minor league operations first and foremost, but it puts that region more in my head, being able to contextualize it that way. But anyway, uh, the Pensacola Blue Wahoos have never won an outright championship because in 2017, there were no finals. So they shared it with Chattanooga. In my mind, that doesn't count as winning a title, a co-championship. Um, it's nothing against the teams that win a co-title. They literally had no choice. They would have loved to have played the series. I think you can say a championship series in the, and I'm not saying the Pensacola Blue Wahoos said that, but I think it's always satisfying when you win an outright title, but they beat Tennessee Smokies whose last Southern league title goes back to 1978 um, when they were, you know, officially in Knoxville, which I consider the same market, same team. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're now in Kodak, Sevierville, Dollywood, <laughs> all, all right around there. But um, Tennessee, you know, came up just short, one game short of winning a title, um, trying to snap a drought that goes back to 1978. And that's the second longest drought in all of minor league baseball behind the Syracuse Mets slash Chiefs going back to 1976. The last time the Chiefs won it all, uh, they were a Yankees affiliate managed by Billy Martin. Not a bad guess. You, you you wouldn't be surprised if through his ups and downs with George Steinbrenner or something, yeah, he was like demoted to the minors. Not someone who has a, a reputation for managing in the Yankees organization, but someone who is a Hall of Fame manager. 1976 Syracuse Chiefs were managed by Bobby Cox. Oh, okay. Um, so, you know, and on and on it goes. One more. Um, the Charleston River Dogs never won a South Atlantic League championship from 1980 all the way through 2019. They were established in 1980, never won. That was one of the longest droughts going. Then they transfer to the low A East. Low A East. Yeah. And uh, win it all in 2021. And then they've won it again this year in 2022 in the 
Carolina Carolina League. League. And and before I think I said Bowling Green won, won the Carolina, Carolina League. League. They won the South. They Atlantic. won in the South Atlantic League. There's been so much shifting; it's uh, easy to uh, get a little confused. And for those of you who've spent the last four or five minutes of my uh, <laughs> me talking still with that stuck in your crawl, like he said, the Bowling Green Hot Rods won the Carolina League. Excuse me, no, they won. The South Atlantic, Atlantic League. League. Well, and it, they're easy to confuse kind of too because they're both Rays affiliates. Yeah. Like, you know, the Rays have a Carolina League affiliate. You know, they have a South Atlantic League affiliate. Sometimes it still takes me a little bit to to switch those in my mind. But yeah. Uh, and you yeah. talk about winning throughout an organization that's back to back championships for the Bowling Green Hot Rods in the Rays system for the Charleston River Dogs in the Rays system. And uh, we have Durham perpetually in the playoffs at the triple a level and montgomery was in the south division semifinals in the southern league durham as we've said you know is still competing for an il championship this weekend could win the triple a national championship right if so, they, if so they further investigation one. might be needed but uh i don't think we'd have to investigate too long to, to realize that tampa has uh brought home more uh minor league championships than <laughs> just about any other organization over a number of years. Uh, really impressive what they're doing with that. But yeah, like, as you said, I, I just, the way I look at minor league baseball writ large, I look at the playoffs as a chance to kind of contextualize things, look at the history, find little quirks and, and that kind of thing. And I think there's that sense as there is with, I think all of us in different ways. And I'm sure with many of the people listening, you know, you sense the season ending. So you're just kind of trying to grasp onto little facts and happenings and something before, you know, the void swallows us all. But I like the void because <laughs> uh, it gives me a chance to unwind and do some other things and not stay so, minor league centric all the time right right and i think there are a lot of people in front offices who are looking forward to recollecting themselves and and you know getting ready for 2023 at some point but being able to reflect on 2022 and and let's do that now real quick ben you and i obviously we're gonna have a long time to do this and and look back on the 2022 season but it is fresh right now double a playoffs high a single a all over we only have three games left technically on the minor league counter they're all playoff games, all in Las Vegas. So the regular season is done everywhere. When you look back on this season, what themes come to mind? What are you going to think about it? Um, you know, I, I know a lot of things are going to crystallize in the weeks and months ahead. But as we sit here now on September 29th, how are you most remembering the 2022 season? Well, on a personal level, and I've talked about this before, but um, it allowed me to after a several year period of not being able to do this to have once again, to been to every single minor league ballpark. So I think I'll think about the places that I went. Um, and, and these were the ones that made the most impression on me that, that I'd never been to before. And it was, it was nice because that's not going to happen now, at least in the affiliated landscape of being to a place I've never been for quite some time. We have new stadiums in various stages of, you know, planning and possibility, but nothing opening in 2023 probably not in 2024. So uh, the landscape after a, a lot of shuffling over the last couple of years is, um, is going to be pretty uh, stayed, yeah. uh, pretty stable, I think is the word. So, but being able to get to, uh, and there were a lot of places in 2021, I wasn't able to get just because there was so much that was new and it was obviously a very strange season with uh, still concerns from COVID and capacity restrictions. And, you know, I had a kid in February of that year, so didn't get to do as much traveling in 2021 as I like to. So it felt um, you know, I, I didn't travel. I, I don't think I'll ever maybe travel as much as I did in my early days, but still getting back out there, having it feel more or less normal, going to St. Paul for the first time, going to uh, Beloit's new ballpark uh, for the first time, 
um, going to Sugarland, you know, for the first time, mm-hmm. um, places like that, I think always make the most Wichita make the most impression. Cause it was like, Hey, this was new. This was somewhere I'd never been. Um, and I think when I also, when I think back on this season, it's another subject we've talked about, you know, in different ways through the season, but, uh, it made a real impact. And, and, and I think I will always look at 2022 as, as the year of the, you know, the pitch clock. Um, mm-hmm. and just even for someone like me, who's not, you know, necessarily focused on the game moment to moment, pitch to pitch. Um, you know, for me, the length of the game is sort of the the, the canvas in which I have to the, those nine innings are the sort of the that that provides the context in which I operate. And there were a lot of times I were I kind of gotten used to and sometimes in a cynical way of just being like, well, I just did this, 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 this. And I talked to this person. I ran over here and this happened between innings. And then I get a chance to look up and it seems like hours have passed and hours have passed. And it's like the bottom of the fourth, top of the fifth. And you just feel like, oh, I love baseball, but this, you know single a game <laughs> you know on a tuesday night does not need to take three hours and 40 minutes with a 6-3 final score um so i do think there was a problem obviously we talk about it in the majors most of all but it was certainly uh felt at the minor league level uh as well and coming into this season man those games were often a lot crisper uh again for my context sometimes too crisp but because if i'm in a place one night you know two nights tops Sometimes be like, what? This game was two hours and 10 minutes. Like I didn't even talk to this person and now everyone's leaving. Like what? No, stick around for a little longer. Like let, let me, you know, I'm only here this one night. Wingstop doesn't close for another couple hours. I'm good. <laughs> no, I'm good. <laughs> you know? um, so definitely. And, and even, uh, you know, I'm not always, but you know, fairly often I'm asked when I visit a place, you know, spend time with the uh, broadcaster on the air. And I love doing that. And, and that, was some of the times I was most aware of the new rhythms of the game, uh, how quick some of these half innings would go, how hard it would be sometimes to be asked a question, answer it while the action's going on with all the breaks for the action on the play. And then often like, Hey, well, uh, can you stick around for another half inning? Because like basically all we did was say hello. And then uh, (laughs) it's just time to go to a commercial break. Um, So it, it will affect, it has affected and will affect. And another thing I mentioned is, you know, it's not something I did for a story, but I just asked so many people about it throughout the season. And I'd say it was 95% positive um, from fans and front office alike um, saying they like the quality of the play on the field better. I think operationally, the people found uh, who work in minor league baseball found they had a little more time to themselves, especially with some earlier start times. You know, you'd have games ending at you know, starting at 6.05 and ending at, you know, 8.20 and it's still kind of light out. And mm. I think psychologically that was uh, easier for a lot of people. And I mean, and yes, there's the argument that, um, hey, you know, we're, we make business like in the ballpark. That's where our revenue comes from. Why do we want to limit the amount of time people are in a ballpark spending money? But I think the majority of the time people aren't spending money past the two and a half, three hour mark in a game. And a lot of, you know, we talk about family friendly entertainment. It's a lot of families. Um, You know, it's a lot of it is moms controlling the entertainment dollar. A lot of it is young kids. And uh, I think that demographic who just comes for a night out of entertainment isn't really interested in sticking around at 10 or 1030 or saying like, no, we have to leave before the fireworks started because it's, (laughs) it's getting so late. And so I think operationally, and it costs money to, you know, keep the lights on, pay employees, do all that. And I think often the revenue generated, you know, throughout the day-to-day course of a season is uh, 
not at all as much as it just costs <laughs> to, right. to operate during that time. There are exceptions to that, of course, but uh, it's a team by team thing, like everything is in minor league baseball. But uh, it really was a noticeable difference this year. Yeah, it's interesting you brought that up in terms of just what it's like in terms of watching as a fan at the ballpark. Because I remember going to New Hampshire recently to watch a pitcher cats game, cover it as the MLB pipeline game of the month. And it stood out to me the fact that they have an open concourse. You can go get your hot dogs and you can still see the field. You can, and that matters. I feel like so much more in the era of the pitch clock. 100%. Like if you're going to be in line for 15, 20 minutes and, and there weren't that many stands open, like you were going to be in line for a while, you could still watch the game. If you're in the stand somewhere else, maybe like some of these major league ballparks, you're watching it on the screen, you're following it on your phone, you're listening to it on the in-stadium radio, something like that, but you're not seeing the game. Do you feel like, I don't know. Is that? Do you think those things could be linked in terms of future stadium design? I, I know the open concourse right now is basically in vogue in terms of what minor league stadiums look like. Yeah, I don't see that stopping at all. And but I do think that if a game's going to be shorter and you're not always in your seat, no matter where you are, at least being able to turn around and see the game or maybe actually able to look at it as it's going on, even if you're not in your seat and you still feel like you're part of the atmosphere and you still feel like you're outside i think mm-hmm. is a is a very important thing but uh, and, and i did hear some fan complaints to that extent sometimes especially in ballparks that maybe don't have the open concourse as older ballparks but if you do have a pitch clock and you have a you know a very fast well-pitched game on top of the pitch clock and let's say you get to the ballpark slightly late miss the first inning anyway get in your seat say oh i want some food you know if it's a crowded night and a lot of teams you know still had some staffing issues this year kind of slow line at the concessions. I mean, there was the real possibility that by the time you sit down with your food and really settle in, it's like the bottom of the fifth inning. Hmm. Uh, so, you know, it, it's not necessarily always a positive. And obviously there's going to be those people in minor or major league baseball who just say baseball's a game without a clock, any kind of clock. Don't put any clocks on this game, but uh, uh, it's coming. And uh, I'd say the results were uh, on the whole uniformly positive. Yeah. And the word I always come back to is just crisp. The one you used before too, just how much of more of a cadence the game has, you know, it's moving. You can constantly see it. Um, You know, even bringing my five-year-old nephew, which I've talked about a few times on the show to a Worcester game this summer. um, There was always something happening, you know, even as distracted as he, as he gets at that age. And he wanted to go to the playground. He wanted to go get ice cream. He wanted to do all this stuff. And, and we did, but it was also easy to have him watch the game because you knew there was a pitch coming within 14 seconds um, or you know 19 seconds if there was nobody on. So that, I'm sure we're going to be talking about pitch clock a lot more, especially as the 2023 Major League season comes on, along. But I'm glad you brought that up now because I think this really is the season in which that crystallized for so many people in baseball, anybody who went out to a minor league game. Um, and if you didn't, and you're listening to the show, I'm, I'm fascinated how you found us. I welcome you in, but, um, yeah, it just know that a lot of people who went to go see my early games this year, enjoyed the product, enjoyed how much crisper it was, how quickly everything was moving. Even like, yeah, the game might be over in two hours and 10 minutes, but if it's constantly moving while that's happening, it's so much better. It's it's a much better viewing experience. Um, all right, Ben. Well, like I said, we're going to talk a lot more about the 2022 season and what it all means. Um, but I want to pivot real quick to something you wrote about in your newsletter recently. Uh, minor League Baseball, specifically AAA, specifically the Pacific Coast League, had to say goodbye to a stadium feature 
this week. Uh, we're going to hear a lot about stadium renovations, I think, in the, the weeks and months ahead, um, just as a lot of teams try to get up to what is now basically major league code. Um, but one of the things we're losing has many names. I've heard it called many things. I've heard it called Isotopes Hill. I've heard it called Tope Slope, which is what you called it in your most recent newsletter. Um, but the Albuquerque Isotopes are losing basically the hill that they had in center field. Think of what Houston used to have in their center field. Albuquerque had something similar that's now going away. Yeah, sad to see. I mean, there is the inevitable and fairly reasonable argument that, you know, it could be a detriment to player wellness and, and safety. <laughs> fairly, fairly okay. Yeah, I mean, yeah. it's okay. You can't necessarily, you can't really argue with that, that, you know, it's, it, it's a bit of a health risk having a hill in center in dead center field. I mean, what is it out there? 428, 430 feet. I mean, it is a little sliver of the stadium in deep, deep center that is uh, uh, very deep and has a hill on it. Um, so it led to a lot of highlights and bloopers through the years. And, uh, you know, that's been broadly speaking, you know, my job, my career has been pointing out the quirks and unique aspects of every single ballpark and few on-field elements were as uh, distinct as that. Uh, I'll call it Tope Slope. Tope I Slope mean, is is more fun, yeah, I think. Yeah, that's a good name for it. I think yeah. a lot of people just called it The Hill, you know, right. which a lot of people call me as well. Um, our, our foremost hill expert. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Here's Ben. Exactly. Um, so it is sad to see it go. I liked how the team... Uh, really put some thought into the goodbye. Uh, If you haven't seen it on Twitter, uh, check out uh, Albuquerque Isotopes on Twitter. Uh, They put together a video with testimonial from outfielders through a wide range of franchise history uh, saying goodbye, uh, as well as the Isotopes former groundskeeper, uh, Clint, a former winter winter meetings job seeker journal writer. Anyway, lest I get sidetracked, but they had former groundskeepers, former outfielders, um, and GM John Traub saying, um, you know, explaining the reasons why, uh, but it was, you know, a little bit of humor to it, but also it was heartfelt as well. And then uh, they com- they concluded their season as all AAA teams did on Wednesday. And after the game, they allowed fans onto the field to take pictures of it and, uh, you know, say goodbye and run up it or whatever you want to do. Give it a big hug. Yeah. Essentially. And, and whatever way you want to say bye to a hill. That's uh, they allowed fans to do that. Well, maybe not anyway, but most of them. And uh, today, I didn't even look at it, but I think they had some uh, tweet up today of a big heavy-duty construction vehicle already starting to rip it up. So uh, hey, it's the off season. Get moving. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> goodbye to uh, Tope Slope. So uh, yeah. oh man, yeah. Today's ceremonial first dig is what they had. R- brought to you by hashtag Mountain West Golfscapes. I mean, congrats on the. Free advertising there, but hashtag uh, RIP Hill. Yeah. They also have pictures of like the team sitting out there, uh, almost looking like a first grade class field trip. It it does look like an elementary school (laughs) photo. Absolutely. But so, uh, yeah, I did focus, uh, I did mention that in my newsletter, didn't do any real more, you know, new reporting on it, but. That's because our colleague, your friend of mine, Josh Jackson, wrote a feature on it uh, in 2017. So I just uh, linked linked to that story. And uh, if you're not subscribing to the Ben's Bizbeat newsletter, it appears in your mail in your inbox every Thursday. And uh, got a little bit about the Tope Slope in the uh, new edition, and uh, also a fairly lengthy write up on uh, my time in Rochester with the Red Wings at Frontier Field. I've talked a little bit about that in recent weeks, uh, but. This has pictures. That's what people say. <laughs> I mean, what is a writer, but just someone who does a bunch of boring stuff in between pictures. So 
check it out uh, and uh, subscribe. There's a newsletter registration link uh, as one of the options on the uh, milb.com homepage. If you can't find it, um, it's a little drop down at the top menu, but whatever. If you can't find it, just email me, hit me up on Twitter. I want you to be reading this if you would like to read it. All right. Well, you mentioned Rochester there. While we're in Western New York, um, just let's tease out one of the projects you're working on now from your time in Buffalo. Um, you had a pretty lengthy conversation with a member of the front office there about all the change that's happened in Buffalo in just two and a half short years. Um, seems like it's going to be a multi-part series, so we'll talk about it more on the podcast once that's completed. But what can you kind of tease out, folks, to to read on MILB.com in the future? Yeah, well, it goes without saying that uh, every team in the industry, as well as essentially every business and every individual person in America, went through some weird times with the pandemic. Uh, 20 into 21. Um, but from a minor league baseball context, uh, no team quite went, went through quite what the Buffalo Bisons did with uh, hosting the Blue Jays in 2020 in front of no fans. And then in 2021, uh, hosting the Blue Jays yet again for several months, which required the Bisons to go to Trenton. And it was a whole convoluted saga, uh, those two seasons, as well as even 2022, because they couldn't still couldn't plan for a normal 2022 uh, with still all the different things that were going on and the uncertainty regarding vaccine uh, mandates and, and mask mandates and uh, you know, how close they are to the Canadian border and whether you still need to use the arrive can app and everything. So even 2022 while normal on the surface was not so normal. So when I was in Buffalo, I got a chance to talk to the GM, Anthony Sprague, and uh, he just talked me through in a long interview, what it was like leading the team through, this really anomalous period uh, for them. And uh, for a little bit more of a hook, he was hired on March 5th, or he was informed that he would get the job March 5th, 2020. They announced it on March 9th on a, in a press release. He flew to Dunedin uh, the next day for spring training. And then March 11th was when everything started to go a little crazy. So his entire tenure as GM has just been in this cloud of just totally bizarre uh baseball happenings and uh you know welcome to the top spot <laughs> and, uh, so it was an interesting conversation and and in writing it out i was just like yeah this needs to i need to break this up a little bit because you know internet attention spans ain't what they used to be and uh i think it'll be fun to uh, tease it out a little bit we'll talk about it more uh, as it becomes real but keep an eye out for that as as well as a few more things from that final road trip uh, i'm gonna keep the season going uh at least in my material for another couple of weeks and uh, really going to be going back to the ballpark guides and finishing that project. We'll still have a lot to talk about as much as we talk about things slowing down. They do. It never really stops. Everyone knows this. I know we've been talking a lot in this show about like, Oh, the season's over. And, and what does that mean? And let's look back at the season. That doesn't mean what we're doing is stopping. There's still so many ways to break down the season. There's still so many ways to look at what's happened, people to talk to things to write. So we, the pods aren't going anywhere. The content's not going anywhere. We're still going to be writing a lot of stuff at MILB.com and MLB.com slash pipeline. Um, ben, looking forward to that Buffalo series, seeing that out in the world and talking about it in the weeks to come. And yeah, we'll catch you next week. Not if I run so fast, you can't catch me. I was really wondering where you were going with it. Me too. All right. Well, like uh, Tope Slope. It's time to say goodbye to a hill. Bye then. R.I.P. Hill.
Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. We interrupt this podcast to bring you another thrilling edition of Ghosts of the Miners. Now, here's your correspondent and host, Joshua Jackson. <laughs> Welcome back to Ghosts of the Miners, in which all of you out there in Radio Land must identify the legitimate historical ball club hiding amidst the fraudulent pair. One left a rich legacy, the others left no trace. In the last segment, I asked you which of the following minor league baseball teams did at one time exist. A. The Everett E. Bays. B. The Bremerton Browsers. C. The Lincoln Links. Click here if you pick C. The Lincoln Links, who cultivated real connections to fans in Nebraska's capital city intermittently from 1917 to 1939. Lincoln had fielded a team in the Western League as far back as the brief 1888 season, the circuit disbanded in June that year, but found a new, long-lasting moniker as the Lynx after the team stopped wearing stripes and usage of its Tigers name fell to a dull roar following the campaign of 16. Lynx, of course, is a newspaper headline-friendly adaptation of Lincoln baseball team, and so it all clicked. The Lynx, they were. And from the beginning, the Lynx looked like they were in lockstep. The club's continued existence for that 17th season was largely a credit to the efforts of Frank Zarung, a Lincoln High School and University of Nebraska product who established himself running a local drugstore before managing an opera house, a legitimate theater, and finally the whole city. Yes, Zarung rung the bell as mayor of Lincoln for five terms, having completed his first stint two years before he secured the 17 baseball season and served as president Lincoln's club, er, president of the Lincoln club. The Lynx started at Zarung and just kept climbing, leaving competitors like the Friends of Ghosts of the Miners, Hutchinson Wheat Shockers, in a stupor by finishing 83-64 and 64 in that first season of 17, only being bested by the Des Moines Boosters by a game and a half. But the financial picture was much bleaker. The Lynx lacked for lucre. On December 30th, the Omaha Daily Bee was abuzz with a report that manager Ducky Holmes, who'd invested in his Lincoln team, saw the writing on the wall and knew the Lynx would be left in the lurch for 18. Ducky Holmes has packed his suitcase, thrown in the extra necktie and a couple of collars and gone calling, the Daily Bee said. The Lynx almost passed out of the picture last summer and Ducky had to go into the baby's bank to pay the league's dues. But nobody wants to see how the Lynx sausage was made. The dead Lynx got hooked up in the Nebraska State League of 1922 and had a title in 23. And the Lynx directed themselves back and forth between the Nebraska State League and the Western League until the end of the 30s, also chaining themselves to a Nebraska State League ring in 34 with help from middle infielder Frank Morehouse, Brady Nels Potter, and southpaw Tom Seats. 
But the Nebraska State League folded in 38, and when the Western League began in 1940, Lincoln logged off. And that's how the Lynx went missing. Now, on to the question for next time. Which of these teams was a shining gem in the minors of yesteryear? A. The Pioneer Quartzers. B. The Rock Hill Rubies. C. The Pittsburgh Diamonds. Want to know the answer? Get digging. Or tune into the next Ghosts of the Miners. But for now, you'll have to excuse me. My producer Ben Hill is making plans for the World Series, but he hasn't even secured a wild card spot. Final segment of this week's episode of the show before the show. Huge thanks to Grayson Rodriguez from the Baltimore Orioles for stopping by. Benjamin Hill, as always. Josh Jackson, as always. And um, not a lot to plug for you on MILB.TV. However... Uh, the AAA Triple Championship will be on MILB.TV. You can catch all of those games from Las Vegas, the International League matchup, the Pacific Coast League matchup, and, of course, the AAA National Championship game itself. Uh, have a fun weekend. Stay in. Watch some minor league baseball. It's the final time you can do it in 2022, so you should probably do it this weekend. Uh, also, if you are so inclined, WorldBaseballClassic.com, MLB.com, MLB.tv, uh, the official YouTube and Facebook channels of the World Baseball Classic. You can catch all of our broadcasts from here in Panama. We've got nine games starting on Friday, doubleheaders Friday, Saturday, Sunday, scheduled off day on Monday, doubleheader Tuesday, and our final game on Wednesday. Two teams will qualify for the 2023 World Baseball Classic, and uh, I'll be on the call for those alongside Ryan Roland-Smith for MLB Network, so um, tune into those as well. We'll have some fun. Tyler, who's making it? Predictions. Brazil, I think, is going to make it. And Panama, I think, is going to make it. Uh, I think, that's I think those will be the two. Yeah. Um, but, you know, I am prepared for some surprises. Uh, who's the Czech Republic of this? this exactly. There yeah. will If there is a, a stunner uh, coming out of this, you know, I think this Argentina team could be talented. We don't really see Argentina a lot on the international baseball stage. I think they could be good. Nicaragua is always going to be good. New Zealand has got a lot of talented guys. And this Pakistan team, you know, who knows? They've got a lot of college players um, who are, you know, playing right now in the States. Um, some younger guys. I know they've got at least one high school player on that roster um, who's got some really good stuff, a prep player out of Illinois. Um, it's going to be interesting. I don't know if they're going to have enough to make a Cinderella run. But, you know, it's uh, it's all about the growth of the game globally. And um, there are some really intriguing rosters here. And uh, we're going to have uh, a bunch of fun. I think the Saturday night game, especially Panama's first home game, I think we're expecting a big crowd for that. Um, and I'm excited, man. This is going to be a, a very fun next five, six days, whatever it is. Hmm. Well, I look forward to watching it from here. Yeah. On top of the triple A games that we have to watch. But, yeah, yeah, we talk about the end of the regular season, but like there's still – <laughs> the wheel keeps turning, man. Yeah, there's always the Arizona Fall League starts on Monday. Exactly. Baseball's yeah. always going. It's always right. going on somewhere. Um, so yeah, tune in. You got a lot of places to watch a lot of fun stuff. And uh until next week, friend to Sam Dykstra. I'm Tyler Mon. Thanks for joining us and uh we'll talk to you then. Hi, everybody. It's Sam just jumping in here in kind of an MCU slash Ferris Bueller's day off uh, after credit scene of some sort. Uh, we recorded the podcast yesterday 
on September 29th. And as you may have heard, late Thursday night, news broke that MLB Pipeline's number one overall prospect, Francisco Alvarez, will be called up to the Mets just in time to join the big club uh, for their big regular season series against the Braves in Atlanta. Could decide the NL East. The Mets currently have a one-game lead in that division, um, but the Braves and the Mets set to play a three-game set. The Mets have had problems recently hitting left-handed pitching. Darren Ruff has not come quite as advertised after his trade. Mark Vientos has struggled after his own call-up. So now they turn to MLB Pipeline's number one overall prospect in Francisco Alvarez. Alvarez joins the Mets at a good time for him. Anytime is going to be good, obviously, for such a young catcher. But he had a right ankle injury for a little bit there. It caused him to miss more than two weeks in August and September. In 13 games since he's come back, for AAA Syracuse, whose season is now over, he hit 362, 483, 596 with three homers and 10 walks in those final 13 games of the regular season. Alvarez has plus-plus power. That's the reason why we're so excited about him on the MLB pipeline side. It might be the best raw power in all of minor league baseball. Uh, I remember Buck Showalter talking about Alvarez in the spring, being really excited about him as just a 20-year-old saying he was hitting major league quality home runs in the spring. That continued this year um, between Syracuse and AA Binghamton. Um, he's hit 51 minor league homers over the last two seasons, which are the second most at his position. He hit 27 this year at Syracuse and Binghamton. That's a career high for him. Um, the power is going to play in the major leagues. It's you know, the approach, how is he going to fare against Major League Pitching, against guys who are pitching him differently than he's seen at the upper levels so far? We will see. But Francisco Alvarez certainly joins Majors at an exciting time. He becomes the youngest player in Major League Baseball, uh, beating out Ezekiel Tovar for that. So that's another reason why we're so high on him is that he has so much development remaining, but he's already this advanced at just 20 years old. So exciting times for Francisco Alvarez and the Mets. I'm sure we'll discuss this more on next week's pod. But given that it's such big news, given that it's the number one prospect in baseball, according to MLB Pipeline, want to jump here in here at the end after we wrapped up everything else to just add this at the end. If you remember the first segment, I said what I love about minor league baseball this year is that it felt normal, but there were also some surprises, a surprise came to us just after we recorded in Francisco Alvarez getting the call. So thanks again for listening this week. We will be back next week, of course, to talk to you again about the AAA National Championship and how that went, how Francisco Alvarez's Major League debut went, and also how the Arizona Fall League began, considering, again, that's starting on Monday. Hope to catch you then.